turn, please, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, our series on the future is as bright as the promises of God. Isaiah 6, verse 1, this is the word of God. Near the king as I died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the sound of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I stand a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad this morning that we have your word before us. We ask now for your Spirit's help to grasp that word and apply it to our hearts and minds. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And join me in the affirmation that we usually make. As withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. All right. In a fast-changing world, in a nation where the church is no longer in the cultural mainstream as it was for the first 400 years of our nation, what still makes the future as bright as the promises of God? As we begin to answer that question, there are three other questions we'll need to keep in mind over the next couple of weeks. One is, who are we? What's our identity? Who does God call us to be? And then, second, what does God call us to do? And third, given the world we live in, what are the opportunities before us uh, uh, for ministry as we move into the future? So to start to answer those questions from the Word of God, let's, let's go to the text. First, who are we as a church? What's our DNA? Now, we're going to refer several times to the verse we read as the call to worship last week over the next few weeks, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And Peter tells us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priest and a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. All those names originally are assigned to Israel in the Old Testament, and now they're given to the church as the new people of God. And every local church that believes and teaches God's Word is being described in those verses, and we share much in common with these churches. Yet we know local churches are different. All of us as human beings, we, we are the same, but we look different. Our hair color, height, eye, skin color. It's all determined by our DNA, our, our hereditary code given us to God that makes us, well, makes us us. Uh, and uh, so two churches have their own unique DNA, uh, God-given. We do. Our sister church across the street does. Christ Place does. Uh, Mercy Baptist Church down on Tanner's Mill Road does. Um, and so what's unique about us? What about this church that God has placed in Chestnut Mountain? What shapes our ministry uh, that is a little bit unique from the others? Well, we need to look first then at our past connection. Let's start by looking at our DNA. Uh, church planters have a great opportunity to impact uh, a church's DNA, probably a greater opportunity than all the pastors that follow after them, uh, to impact the church, to make it unique for the place God has it to be, that community, and the time God has it to be there. 
With that in mind, let me remind you, some of you, and introduce some of you to, as well, to the, to the church planter of Chestnut Mount Christian Church, uh, Thomas Parmalee Cleveland, or as he typically signed his name, T.P. Cleveland. All right, uh, I put his picture in your notes there so you could get a good look at him. Uh, he was born in 1837, about 80 miles from here in Washington, Georgia. He was born the same year as his more famous cousin was, Grover Cleveland, the president. T.P. was well-educated. He went to the, one of the nation's most prestigious colleges, uh, Princeton. Following college, he felt a call to the ministry, and he went to Columbia Seminary, then in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, as he graduated, the Civil War broke out. Uh, he was a first a private and then a chaplain in the Confederate Army. After the war, he married his wife, Helen, on July 26th, uh, 1867, in case you celebrated their anniversary this week. I don't know if you did or not. Um, his first pastorates were in Jackson County, uh, serving both the Sandy Creek and the Beth Avon congregations. Um, the Sandy Creek Church was particularly interesting because they had both black and white members and they actually mingled those members on their church membership list, which was quite unusual for the day. Later, he was known for his close relationship with the black community. Uh, he would participate in a funeral of a very prominent African-American in Atlanta, uh, again, uh, unusual. In 1873, at the age of 35, he accepted the call to become the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Gainesville. Uh, one of the ruling notes there was Milton Turk. Yes, the great-great-grandfather of our Milton Turk and Rachel Turk Wooster, who's sitting back there in the back. Um, uh, and uh, another man, uh, John Baird, had been an elder at the Thyatira Church over there between Jefferson and Commerce. You remember a few years ago we tried to replant that church, um, did not succeed. But he evidently moved to Chestnut Mountain. And so the year TP arrived, the three of them began to spearhead an effort to plant a church here in Chestnut Mountain. They held their first meeting on September 17, 1873. That new church became a reality in July of 1874. Uh, Mr. Turk and Mr. Baird were the two elders. Mr. Cleveland was the pastor. He remained as the pastor till 1881. That makes him the, the, had the second longest tenure of any pastor ever in the church's history. Uh, I won't say who the first is, all right? Um, uh, 39 people promised a total of $420 uh, in eight, uh, 1873. They promised the money, gave it in 1876. And so the church, original church was built for $420. Uh, very difficult financial period in the life of our nation, especially in the South. He also helped found Brunel University, by the way, for those of you who went there. Um, now, if you followed his ministry after he left Gainesville, uh, in 1885, he went to Atlanta. He took over a two-year-old church there, the Fourth Presbyterian Church. Had 50 members at the time. It quickly had 400. Think about that. That was back in the 1880s. Um, he got his Doctor of Divinity degree in 1888. He got the idea to advertise church in the newspaper. Um, if you don't know what a newspaper is, your parents will tell you. Uh, he, he, he later served down in Hapeville. Uh, in retirement, he had preached at various churches around the area. He was on the denomination's home mission committee, so he was over, which was over the church planting in the denomination. He wrote a pamphlet on baptism. Uh, when he died in 1929, he was the oldest living alumnus of Princeton. He was the oldest living uh, pastor 
in the Southern Presbyterian Church, in his obituary, which was also carried in the New York Times, began this way, one of Atlanta's oldest and most distinguished divines. And his wife Helen, had, uh, who died in 1906, had 11 children. He outlived all but three of them. All right, so now that you know Mr. Cleveland, uh, I know you're excited about that. Uh, what do we learn from that? All right? Uh, what do we, we look at his interest and what do we see? One is he had a great vision for all of God's kingdom. He had the heart of a church planter. He wanted to see Bible-believing churches planted in, in communities adjacent to where he served. Uh, he wanted this community to have a Presbyterian church. He saw a need here for the Reformed faith. He believed the church should reflect the makeup of the people who lived in the community. Um, he believed preaching the Word of God was an essential building block for building on, the, uh, on Christ the foundation. Uh, he knew that the doctrine and practice of baptism was significant. It made Presbyterians different because we do emphasize the covenant. He strongly believed in the connectionalism of the church. He knew the centrality of the Lord's Supper for life and ministry. And so when we look at CMC today, we can see traces of that DNA among us. Um, a church for the community, uh, trying to reflect the community. That's our goal. Uh, but look how the local community uses our facilities for meetings, uh, voting, education, quilting, and more. And we have the busiest Covenant Life Center in Hall County. All right, I know that. Uh, historical note, too, when the, when the Chestnut Mountain School burned down, uh, the two churches stepped up, and that's where the, the school met for a time. Uh, we're a church who, who seeks to reach and reflect the community, a church that understands adjacent communities need their own churches, since we, we planted East Lanier, uh, we supported Christ the King. We remain committed to the preaching and teaching of God's Word as vitally fundamental to our as a church and to the mission God's assigned us. And we are a Presbyterian church, a connected church, making us accountable uh, and sharing in the ministry God's called us to. And, and again, the distinctiveness we bring of the covenant and the proclamation of the word in this community. So whatever our ministry looks like, it's always going to include that basic makeup. And so that's why it's essential that we nail down what we are called to do as a church. Peter puts it simply there in, in 1 Peter, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now we're going to talk more about the call next week. But I just let me say there's, there's no need to complicate the call we have as a church. It all centers on worshiping Jesus and making Jesus known. Or as we put it, uh, to equip the saints to make disciples who, who exalt God and engage His world. We declare God's excellencies. That's the great commandment and the great commission together. And though God's called us out of darkness, and friends, the world we live and work in today is dark. Now, it's that darkness that takes us to our main text, uh, Isaiah 6. It begins, in the year King Uzziah died, now, what, what was special about that? And if you were around in 740 B.C., probably not. So let me tell you about it. There are real parallels between Isaiah's world and the world that we live in today. 
Isaiah was born about 760 B.C. Now, you historians know that's about the same time the city of Rome was first established. Uh, It was just after they'd held the very first Olympics. During his lifetime, the famed Greek writer Homer uh, composed uh, the Iliad and then its sequel, the Odyssey. The Assyrian Empire was beginning to take shape in Iraq uh, to become the dominant world power in the Middle East. And while we see names in fear like Putin and Xi, uh, in Isaiah's day they would have feared names like Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser. Living in Jerusalem by the time Isaiah was a teenager, the godly king Uzziah had reigned for some 45 years. Now that brought great stability and economic prosperity to Judah in what was a sort of unstable world. However, the wealth gap began to grow rapidly between the rich and the poor. Economic prosperity led to a spiritual malaise and shallowness. They endorsed the notion that just going to church would assure God's favor, protection, and continue material blessings. They began to accept destructive patterns of spirit, social injustice and political corruption. They ignored the plight of the poor. And they incorporated the worship of other gods into their daily lives. One historian suggests it's hard to imagine a transformation more drastic than the one that began in the year that King Uzziah died. But that was Isaiah's call to public ministry came when he was about 20. Now we'll remember that Uzziah's son Jotham was a godly king and he reigned for about 16 years. But his son Ahaz was the epitome of wickedness uh, and spiritual apostasy. In 20 years, the northern kingdom of Israel would become completely destroyed And Judah will plunge further into a moral abyss as as Ahaz brings foreign gods into the temple itself in Jerusalem. So that's Isaiah's world. He knew the kings well. His his education is evident in in his superb writing. Uh, He had a thorough grasp on Israel's history. He knew what was going on in the courts, in the marketplace, in high society. He knew the political frustrations and corruption of the nation. Now, maybe you're starting to draw some parallels to the day we live in. See, that's why Isaiah's message is so applicable today. Our world's a dangerous place itself with a variety of tyrants and dictators struggling for power. With Islam showing its political will and power and communism experiencing a global resurgence. Today, much of American Christianity is a mile wide and and an inch deep. Moral decadence and rebellion are prominent. There's an increasing divide between the rich elite and the rest of the nation. People are bringing the Eastern uh, religions, bringing in spiritual secularism to water down the church's impact. So when Isaiah gets the call during the very unsettling year of Uzziah's death, I believe his call would be our call. His focus would be our focus. His opportunity would be our opportunity. So what is that opportunity? Go back again to the opening verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his feet. With two he covered his feet. Uh, two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called another and said, "Holy, holy, holy, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." So deal with a very uncertain world. Isaiah goes down to the temple to worship. What a busy place. People everywhere. They come from all over Judah. They bring animals for sacrifice so that one cannot escape the smell of animals when approaching the temple. But the closer you get, the the smell begins to mingle with the aroma of meat offered as sacrifices before God as, as well as the stench of blood that flows from the altar. In the background against the noise of the animals and the buzz of the crowd, uh, one can hear the Levite choir, perhaps 400 strong, singing psalms of praise to God. And as Isaiah makes his way into the temple itself, the additional smell of, of incense is thick and hangs in the air. Now he doesn't enter the most holy place, what we sometimes call the Holy of Holies, where the ark is located and the Shekinah glory of God dwells. By standing... Out near the altar, uh, he has a vision of the one who is the Holy of Holies. And this vision changes the course of his life, and hopefully ours as well. Wow, what he sees, what he hears, is mind-boggling. And he faces the same challenge that John had in Revelation. He's got to capture it in words, but we get the sense of, of what Isaiah saw that day was indescribable. But like John, he's got to come to grips with God's majesty. Shaken by the death of of the earthly king Uzziah, Isaiah sees the Lord. Uh, He's confronted by the colossal nature of God's majesty. The dazzling reality that the true king lives. Uzziah was a mere mortal, but in his vision... Isaiah sees the great king of the universe, and he says very simply, I saw the Lord. Let's make no mistake. The one Isaiah sees is King Jesus himself. John's gospel makes it perfectly clear. John writes, he, that is Isaiah, saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So Isaiah sees Jesus, the one the author of Hebrews says, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his being. Uh, Isaiah's ministry then is Jesus-focused. King Jesus is high and exalted, and his robes flow throughout the temple, seeming to to fill it, uh, representing his glorious omnipresence that in fact fills the universe. And around the throne are these seraphs, these angelic creatures, Now, these fire creatures are only mentioned here in the Bible. And they've got six wings. With two of them, they cover their eyes because God's too holy to look on. With two, they cover their feet because despite the fact that these seraphs are sinless creatures, they're unworthy to stand in the presence of God. And with two wings, they're flying, ready to do whatever Jesus' bidding is. How many are there? We're not told. And Isaiah no longer hears the, the Levite choir Because the seraphs are singing, they're calling out truth about Jesus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Now break that down. 
Remember, the Hebrew language doesn't have words like very or much or most or more. Words that indicate something as superlative. Uh, nor does it have the endings to do the same. In other words, we might say something is big. What? Bigger, biggest. But Hebrew to indicate the superlative just repeats the words. Big, big, big. They just stack the words one on top of another. So the seraphim are saying that Jesus is incredibly holy beyond our comprehension. So what's it mean to be holy? Holy means really just to be set apart as something that's different from everything else. That's how God is. He's radically different from us, the creature from the creation. Uh, The creator from the creation, rather. Uh, We attempt to define God in the catechism. We say God's a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But really, our language limits us. God defies our categorization. He doesn't fit our vocabulary, our way of thinking. He is holy, holy, holy. And His glory fills the earth. Now, what's His glory? Again, we, we think about that, and, and uh, I remind you that what we say, that the word really means heavy, weighty, important. Again, you, you got to imagine in the 60s, what did you used to say? You said heavy, man, heavy, right? And, and, and you, you're talking about that, the glory. It means to be important or to be excellent. But what does that mean to say with this excellence that we proclaim that this glory fills the, fills the earth? I think Charles Simmons correct when he suggests that God's glory is best displayed in the wonder of His grace. Uh, that makes sense given God's self-revelation to Moses. Remember, Moses asked to see the glory of God. What he sees and what he hears is God describing the wonder of his own redeeming love. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clears the guilty. Uh, While the whole creation is a display of God's wisdom and power so that we, we get just a glimpse of His colossal greatness as we look around. It is in redemption alone, in His, in His grace alone, that we see the mercy and love of God. God's glory is seen in His redeeming His people from their sin and making them, seem, making them to be His very own. God is so glorious in His salvation. Uh, Jesus is so glorious that His glory fills every nook and cranny of the universe. So Isaiah is in reality seeing Christ enthroned in glory, filling the earth with His glory. And, And Isaiah is filled with absolute awe. And I would caution us That if we are not filled with a sense of awe when we see Jesus, uh, then we've never really seen His majesty. We've never really seen Jesus. And I might be bold to say that that's the problem in the church today. Uh, And it's spilled over into the culture. Or maybe it started in the culture and it spilled over into the church. Either way, we've lost our sense of the majesty of God. 
And when we lose our sense of standing before Jesus' awesome throne, we lose our sense of sin. We begin to think we're not such bad sinners, or even sinners at all, that, that we need a Savior. After all, all we need is a, a Jesus who's a, who's a help in life, right? Jesus to become our buddy, our pal, to, to help us through this world. A Facebook friend to, to like uh, what we do. You know, a cheerleader to encourage us, our, our personal shopper to give us some nice things. Uh, not our Savior who died for us and who demands our allegiance and gives us a call that we should be holy as He is holy. So the culture around us, as in Isaiah's day, has lost complete sight of God. They've rejected God as their Creator. And they reject God's reign over them. We have people committed to doing whatever they need to do to remove God from our world. You'll find them fighting high school football players, praying together. Um, they don't want the Ten Commandments to be visible anywhere. They've even tried to stop prayer in public places, even suggesting to some people in a mall that they couldn't pray before their meal. In the UK, a woman was pray, arrested for silently praying outside of an abortion clinic. Which means basically it's the rest of her just standing there. Even as Christians, we've lost sight of God's holiness. Worship attendance is optional when it's convenient. With our activities determine whether or not we'll, we'll worship the Lord. We don't take God's command to be holy seriously and we view obedience as an option. And if somebody challenges our sin, all we do is cry out, Well, grace, grace is greater than all my sin. It's true but it's not an excuse. The majesty Isaiah saw is, is, is missing from worship participation. Because quite frankly, if we grasp His glory and we hear His call to worship, then worship will have priority in our lives. Yet just that glimpse convicts Isaiah such as we read in verse 5, Woe to me! I'm lost. I'm lost. Immediately, the majesty of God gives Isaiah a brand new perspective of himself. And it jars him into this desperate cry. Now, Isaiah's reaction is not unique when Ezekiel realizes that before him is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He collapses to the ground. When Jesus enables Peter to catch an extraordinary amount of fish... Luke describes Peter's reaction this way. He fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. The most natural response in the world for anyone who comes into contact with the majesty of God is to be convicted of and realize their own sense of sinfulness and worthless and unworthiness and to have a sense of doom and destruction. And I would say if we, we don't have that sense of, of being doomed sinners and tremble with the thoughts of standing before Jesus on our own merit, then we've never grasped the majesty or ministry of Jesus. We have no concept of His holiness or His glory and of our need for the gospel. Again, that gospel need we're going to explore in greater detail next week. But the need is what Jesus gave His life for on the cross as payment for our sin. 
So having seen the majesty of Jesus, having experienced the mercy and grace of God, then we realize God gives us an opportunity to make a difference in this community and world. A great opportunity is to bring before the community and the world the, uh, the greatness and the transcendence and the majesty of God that our world's completely forgotten about and blocked out. And the great motive for this is the call we have and the majesty and the grace of God that we proclaim that's on display in Jesus. It's His cross and resurrection that fills the earth. If we don't stand in awe of Jesus' majesty, friends, we will probably not have any desire to declare His glory among the nations of Northeast Georgia. A glory again that's best seen through the cross. So what about us? Yes, the picture is charming. It's a, a, a smiling pigtail girl. She's about seven or eight. She's holding a surprising sign. It says, I am not a sinner. Now, why is that? Well, before the riots and the chaos that have afflicted the city these last three years, the people in Portland, Oregon, formed a protest group uh, to protest the harmful message being spread across Portland by the Child Evangelism Fellowship in their backyard Bible clubs. Now, what was the message to children that, that they objected to? That children are sinners who need Jesus. Uh, as one protester complained, preaching to children about sin might give them feelings of fear and shame. I hope so. All right. All right. But why did the people of Portland struggle with an exaggerated fear of their own goodness and their children's own goodness? Because they'd forgotten about, and they'd blocked out the majesty of God. They'd forgotten sin is rampant. Look at Portland today. Look at Hall County today. See, we live in a world that's becoming just like Portland. Our task is to let people know about the glory of our great God. A glory that allows us to both see our sin and see His amazing grace. As we will explore in greater detail next week, our call is to make Jesus in all His glory known. His glorious life, death, resurrection, ascension, and His reign. So how can an extraordinary God use this, this church of, of ordinary people? In a way that's true to the DNA that God used uh, through T.P. Cleveland to build this church. Sharing with the world the, who Jesus is and His majesty and His love displayed in the gospel. A Savior of sinners and our Lord and King. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the great God you are, for the majesty and the holiness of Jesus Christ. Holy, holy, holy. So, Father, keep that holiness in view that we might keep in view our own sinfulness. As we see our sin, we might turn from it and embrace the hope of the gospel that Christ died for sinners, that Christ died for us. Lord, your glory is most clearly seen in the cross, and we truly are amazed. Father, there's anybody here that hasn't yet seen that glory, so they haven't yet seen their sin and haven't yet seen their need for Jesus. 
Lord, today show them Jesus, show them His cross, show them Your love. And Father, constantly keep before us as Your people the majesty of Jesus Christ. High and lifted up, we would pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.